I'm Rebecca Hepp, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and I want to welcome you to this episode of New Retina Radio. Today, we are sitting down with a panel of experts to talk about the latest changes to the AMD treatment landscape that are heading into the clinics and your ORs. Joining me as our moderator is Retina Today's Chief Medical Editor, Dr. Alan Ho. Alan? Thank you, Rebecca. And um, I just want to give thanks to the all the experience with us today. And we've now been about 16 years into anti-VEGF therapy, transformational therapies for patients with neovascular AMD, diabetic retinopathy, renal vein occlusion, myopic carotid vascularization. And I feel like we're on now 2.0, as we move into more durable therapies, more mechanisms of action, combination therapies, where we need to do a little talking and find out some wisdom from some experienced um, clinicians. So today we have um, Dr. Robin Geimer, who's kind enough to um, join us from Australia, Dr. Diana Doe, Uh, from Stanford, and Dr. Uh, Charlie Wyckoff from Houston, all of whom are uh, quite experienced and I think um, will share some of their perspectives and pearls on some of our new treatment options. Um, Let's have a brief introduction uh, from each panelist. Hi, Alan. It's great to join you and everybody here tonight. I'm Dr. Diana Doe. I'm a professor of ophthalmology and vice chair of clinical affairs at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford University School of Medicine. Yeah, thanks. Hi, everybody. Pleased to be here from Melbourne, Australia. So I'm Professor of Ophthalmology and Deputy Head of the Centre for Eye Research Australia in Melbourne, and I'm a medical retinal um, subspecialist uh, and do, um, I'm a clinician scientist, so do a lot of research into age-related macular degeneration. Thanks, Alan. Great to be here with you and everybody else. Charlie Wyckoff, Medical and surgical retina specialist, Houston, Texas, heavily involved in clinical trials and um, new programs to develop new therapeutics to move our space forward. Right. And we are uh, now moving forward with some new commercial approvals, um, at least in the United States, for uh, more durable therapies. And let me, let me start with Robin. Um, how do you think new treatments um, that are coming shortly to Australia, like uh, port delivery system known as Sysvimo, or furisumab combination therapy of Abismo approved here in the U.S. will kind of um, fit into your armamentarium for the treatment of, let's say, wet macular generation. Yeah, terrific. So I think as in, in terms of furisumab, I think it just adds an extra choice to our standard choices that we currently have. And so it will fit quite nicely. I think uh, the the way we deliver it will be similar to previous anti-VEGFs. So I think it just gives us an extra choice. I think the way we will tend to use it is in a treat and extend protocol. And I think probably we will start with cases that aren't naive, cases that are currently being treated that we haven't been able to extend, say, past eight eight weeks or so. I think perhaps just recent experience with new uh, treatments that might make us a little bit more hesitant now. So I don't think we will change everyone over straight away. I think in Australia, we're very lucky to have real world experience from the US before we start, hopefully later this year or early next year. So I think, um, first of all, certainly myself, I would uh, transfer people that haven't been able to get past say eight weeks uh, with current uh, treatments. And I would use treat and extend as I would do. And so 
the concept of this, uh, is it a three or a four loading dose? In my mind, you, you treat until it's as stable as you can get it. You treat until it's as dry as you can get it, and then you start to extend. So to me, I'll, I'll either use um, two, three, or four loading doses to, to actually get it dry and then extend. So I think uh, just a, an, extra, an extra choice. PDS is very different because, of course, it requires surgical um, intervention. And in Australia, many AMD patients are treated by someone like myself, a medical retinal um, subspecialist who isn't a VR surgeon. So I'm not sure how we're going to do that sort of interaction and sharing between the medical retinal specialists that like to look after diabetes, uh, neovascular AMD, and then how you... Um, manage them back and forth with the vitro retinal colleague and then who will do the top-ups and who will manage them. So I think that's a question for everybody. I don't think we medical retinal specialists want to hand over the care of these patients. And so it'll be interesting to see how that change in, in management uh, occurs. And um, I think, again, it won't be uh, for everybody with the neovascular AMD. Again, it's likely to start with people who, who aren't able to, to extend out. Um, Diana, you're a, you're a vitreoretinal surgeon and a medical retina specialist, and therefore, tell us how you think about where these fit into your toolbox for patients with wet AMD. I think it's very exciting that we do have these two new FDA-approved treatments for patients with wet AMD. And for ferisumab, it's also FDA approved for diabetic macular edema. As a retina specialist, of course, office-based therapies will still remain my first choice because it's convenient for the patient and offers immediate treatment. In regards to the port delivery system, I think that is also exciting because it's the first wet AMD treatment in over 15 years to provide an alternative to our current standard of care intravitreal office-based injections. You know, the port delivery system with ranibizumab continuously delivers medicine into the eye through a refillable implant. And it may help people with wet AMD maintain their vision with as few as two treatments per year, which is unheard of with our standard of care intravitreal injections. When you talk about those two treatments, you're talking about after a surgical experience to place the port carefully and um, into, the, into the eye and then refill, exchange, refill exchanges. Is that what you mean by two treatments? Yes, you're absolutely correct. The first procedure, placing the port delivery system occurs in the operating room. And then the refill is done in the office using a special needle device. And the refill is given every six months. That was the beneficial effect demonstrated in the phase three archway clinical trial, which showed that every six month refill of the port delivery system <clears throat> did sustain vision compared to eyes that received monthly ranibizumab. Impressive results compared to monthly, the standard of care for ranibizumab, but aren't you gonna miss your patients? Aren't you gonna be concerned about what their maculars are doing while, while they're away? How do you, will you bring them in to have them be assessed uh, before six months? 
I think it's important to know that even though the refill usually occurs at six month intervals, routinely following the patients is still necessary. And it's important because there is a higher risk of endophthalmitis with the port delivery system. In fact, in the clinical trials, there was almost a threefold higher rate of endophthalmitis in eyes that received the port delivery system compared to intravitreal ranibizumab injections. And you might ask, why do patients have a higher risk of endophthalmitis? Well, the port delivery system is a foreign device. It's placed in the pars plana and covering it is the tenons and the conjunctiva. The surgery has to be done very precisely and carefully to prevent the risk of conjunctival retraction or erosion, which would expose the implant to potential harmful bacteria. And that's why the patient still needs to be monitored. Uh, but perhaps that threefold risk that occurred during the clinical trial will be mitigated as we evolve the surgical techniques. And Charlie, you, you've done a lot of um, port delivery um, devices uh, down in Houston area. Um, can you give us some pearls for um, placement of the ports and trying of those ports and trying to avoid those issues that of exposure or, or the port um, dropping into the eye? Yeah, thanks, Alan. And I, I would echo completely what Diana has pointed out. You know, meticulous attention to surgical technique, both in the operating room when the implant is being placed and also during the refill procedure in the clinic is crucial to optimizing sort of the local anatomy and minimizing the risk of a side effect associated with these devices. I mean, backing up for a second, I, I agree with Robin and Diana completely that it's nice to have additional tools in our toolbox. And it's, you know, fantastic from a patient perspective to now have some extra choices. You have a lot of medicines that you can give as office-based um, uh, deliveries, but it's really nice to have a completely alternative approach. And there'll be some patients that really do want to, to grab onto that. So for clinicians, you know, I, I just would be, you know, aware of the options and make sure that you're able to of offer that to patients so they've at least heard of it, even if you're sort of reluctant to use it because of the now well-defined safety um, uh, profile. It's just important that your patients sort of at least hear of it and hear your perspective. It's better for them to hear from you and why you may recommend some specific treatment rather than hear about it from somebody else and say, hey, why didn't you offer me this once every six months treatment? But then, Alan, specifically to your point, you know, I think that the, the specific details of the surgical procedure are extremely well-defined. You know, the sponsor that's brought this to market has done a tremendous job of defining really every little step of the process down to the minutia, um, really having, you know, been through this now for over a decade, developing this product with multiple refinements of technique over the years. And, and you pointed out a great point, Alan, that we actually continue to evolve the surgical technique, and we're still learning from, from things that have happened now months after the initial implantations and evolving things. But the simple take-homes are respect the conjunctiva, respect Tenon's capsule, and make the incision length as small as possible would be my, my key pieces of advice in the operating room. Those are um, great pearls from someone who's done a lot of uh, port deliveries. And 
And many of many of our listeners probably had their patients bring up the the story of what about this six months surgical procedure? And I think you're right. It's it's although it may not be for every patient, and I'll often tell the patients about the current safety profile that is evolving and that it requires um, a trip to the operating room. Many patients, I think, I think we do our patients a service if we at least discuss it, discuss the options so that they're not asking us and saying, well, what about, you didn't mention this. And, and that's, um, that's good practice. Um, so those are really good um, pearls for the surgical implantation of a durable device. How are you going to follow those patients, Charlie? And, and what patients are you going to offer the device to? Yeah, it, great questions, and I think we're still learning. You know, I, I've I've had the the good fortune to be able to place a lot of these devices and now follow many patients for many years at this point with both wet AMD, diabetic macular edema, and diabetic retinopathy. The last two indications not yet FDA approved, but certainly something we've been studying for many months to years. And it's interesting because patients that do not have any adverse events from the product are extremely happy with it by and large. It really is highly effective. I mean, I must admit, before the phase two and then phase three data came out, I kind of thought to myself, I don't know, you're putting a biological protein at body temperature. Are we really thinking this is going to be functional and biologically active months down the road? But, but these trials have overwhelmingly shown that ranibizumab maintains very potent biological activity for months after sitting in that, in that, in that device. So it's, the efficacy is, I think, really not in question anymore. Very, very robust efficacy, anatomic and um, visual long-term at this point. It really is a safety issue. And patients, again, that don't have the adverse events are extremely happy with it. And while sort of the, the pattern here in the phase three program is to refill every six months, based on the phase two data, it seems like probably many patients can go much longer than six months. And so the patients that I'm following outside of clinical trials, I'm actually not routinely refilling at six months. I'm sort of treating and extending those patients, um, sort of like we do with our bolus in-office-based injections, sort of seeing how long they can go before there's reaccumulation of fluid and then plan to refill patients at that stage. Um, I'd love to have something like home OCT to follow these patients, but we don't have that commercially available quite yet. I think that's coming. I do think that's coming because, as we know, the burden of treatment is is not as much the injection itself, but the whole process of coming into the office and <clears throat> in the office visit. So, yes, home monitoring will be great, and that's uh, that's in the works. Let me let me ask you a little bit about Vibismo. Um, Charlie, since you were involved in that program as well, in some ways, uh, I was a little disappointed that this bi-specific dual mechanism, um, biologic inhibitor created by a company experienced in creating um, dual products in one molecule didn't improve on our efficacy bars. Um, yes, maybe there's some signal of durability, but were you were you a little surprised that there wasn't any better efficacy? Yeah, I'm so glad you put it so bluntly because I think that's a completely fair sort of point. And I think the way I see it is in the structure of a phase three trial where you have a very robust control arm, patients receiving 
you know, fixed monthly dosing with ILEA and then every eight week dosing after the loading doses and DME and AMD, a slightly different number of loading doses. Patients do fantastic with every other month ILEA on average through many years of follow-up. We have great data for that. And then in the program, clearly from a functional perspective, there's non-inferiority, no indication of either, uh, either frisimab or flibercept being superior to the other. But there are some anatomic signals, especially in the DME program, to suggest that maybe there is a benefit with the uh, six milligram furosemab dose compared to the two milligram of flibercept dose. And, and, I, and I believe those anatomic signals because they're consistent with what we saw in the phase two program compared to um, ranibizumab in the DME uh, program. And so I, I think the anatomic signals are real. And I do think that in clinical practice that will translate to longer durability. And my hope is, Alan, that once we get out of the structured setting of a phase three program into the real world where patients on average do not receive every other month dosing with ILEA long-term, where there's drop-off in the number of ejections, that a more durable agent may translate into more sustained visual benefit for patients on average in the real world in which repeated every eight-week injections have just been shown repeatedly to not be sustainable at a population level. I just wanted to comment on the furizumab um... I think just remembering that the trial uh, was somewhat artificial in that uh, after a certain number of weeks, you know, there was a decision to make whether the patient went into the 16-week, 12-week or 8-week, whereas in the real world, we would have the ability to change as, as we saw how the patient was going. But these people were, once they were in a, a particular um, uh, category, they had to stay there. So I think that's that's a little artificial, but clearly how you had to plan a trial. In terms of efficacy, we may see better in the real world. But also, I think the true benefit will hopefully come in the medium term, as we, we know that people continue to lose vision in the real world, that they don't match the clinical trials for whatever reason. But part of that is the development of atrophy and fibrosis. And I think the hope is with a not only an anti-VEGF, but the anti-ANG2, there may be an opportunity to have persistent good vision, which we don't currently see uh, in our real world um, outcomes. Yeah, I think the, um, particularly for the diabetic patients, I think the ANG2 mechanism or the inhibition of ANG2 to be specific may be more relevant than in neovascular AMD. We saw signals actually in the Regeneron program and they decided not to proceed with that program, um, but I, but I, I'm hope I'm a little more hopeful for Vibismo um, for maybe raising the bar in efficacy for diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. Um, Robin spoke a little bit about atrophy being our nemesis as we treat patients with wet AMD. Diana, what's your thinking on, um, you know, Apellus has has submitted for pexidocopalin um, for atrophic AMD. What's your forecast for uh, atrophic AMD? What are you telling your patients? And uh, what do you think is gonna happen this year? It is exciting to know that we have new therapeutic options coming um, potentially to the clinic for geographic atrophy. Many of these clinical trials are investigating complement inhibitors and pexidocopalin did complete the phase three clinical trials, looking at whether or not this intravitreal C3 inhibitor given every month or every eight weeks could slow the progression 
of atrophy growth. At the primary endpoint, we recalled that one of the clinical trials did meet the primary endpoint, but the second trial did not. And the sponsor is continuing to follow these study patients in a mass blinded fashion um, through 18 months and beyond to determine if the benefits seen in the phase two clinical trial bear out with longer follow-up in this uh, pivotal trial study population. I think the challenge with these complement inhibitors is that they do not and they cannot reverse the atrophy that has already happened. So the goal is not to improve vision, but to slow down the atrophy area. That I think will be challenging for our patients to be adherent to a very frequent um, administration protocol. And I think that will be hard to um, motivate our patients to come back for monthly or bi-monthly treatment. Carly, um, Diana alluded to um, one of the two requisite trials showing a difference in Derby and Oaks, a Pellish trial and one not. Um, and Wiley Chambers to, be, to, to provide context for approval has said that he's going to look at the totality of the data of the program, including um, phase two results, for example. Where, where, do you, where do you think this is gonna land? Um, we have, um, maybe we'll expect some news from the FDA this summer. Where do you think this is gonna land and how do you think it will be used in practice if it is approved? Yeah, really important questions and, and a challenging topic. And I think Diana really nailed it. And I completely agree with her thoughts. You know, patients come in with vision loss from DME or RVO or AMD or myopic CNV, et cetera, et cetera. And you give them a couple of shots of anti-VEGF, a lot of them notice the improvement, even if their visual acuity doesn't change. And many of their visual acuities does change. They get better and they notice it. This is a totally different situation. And I think even though doctors understand and are going to understand the vision's not going to get better, it's just going to get worse more slowly, it's going to be very hard to communicate that to patients, regardless of what we say, because patients are hopeful by nature, and it's our job to provide some level of hope to them. And we'll tell them it's not going to get better, but they're going to think it is going to get better. And after a few shots, a lot of them are going to say it's not getting better. And we're going to say, we told you so. It's going to be sort of a really a challenge to to maintain consistent dosing. And everything I read into both of the late phase programs now with pivotal data and both the Gather One program as well as the Oaks and Derby program with two different products, the Block C5 and C3 respectively, I think indicate that long-term repeated therapy is going to be needed to maximize your benefit. That's gonna be hard. I think patients are gonna self-select who really wants to maintain this, who's motivated. I think it's going to be more of a patient selection issue rather than a doctor selection issue. Because even if you start therapy, a lot of patients think are going to drop off. But all, all that is kind of negative. I don't mean to be negative. I'm actually very positive about this. I think this is a huge step and a big step forward. I hope both of these products get FDA approved. I hope I'm able to use them commercially. I have a lot of patients that do want access to these medications, even though they're not the percentages that anybody wants doctors, patients, sponsors, 
they're a start. They're sort of like the PDT of dry AMD, and we've got to start somewhere. And I'm hopeful that next generation therapies will be even better. Those comments resonate quite a bit, um, yours and Diana's, in that it's it harkens back to PDT or even macogen, where patients were getting treatment and saying, I'm not seeing better, despite our really trying to educate them that this is not a method to improve vision, but to try and slow down progression and slow down vision loss. We, um, you know, there, there are some biologic signals um, in the, in the Derby Oaks program and also in the Iberic program showing that something's happening here, that we see more macular neovascularization. And that gives me um, some hope that um, there is biologic activity and that we'll have a product for patients with atrophy, certainly in patients with neovascularization that have progressive atrophy, although that's not necessarily studied, we did see that in the program and those patients were treated with anti-VEGF in concurrent with the uh, complement inhibitors and did pretty well in that regard. Um, we need a durable treatment for uh, complement inhibition, and that would be probably more palatable to the patients. Um, I'm going to um, ask Robin if she has any thoughts on the atrophic side of this. I know you've done a lot of work on the intermediate AMD side, which I think is a... Um, which is probably the place to be. Maybe the um, the horses, the, the barns half burned down when we're looking at atrophy. Maybe we'll get approval for non-central involved atrophy is what my thinking uh, kind of is is lending me to, to, to think as a way to get this to approval here. But you've done a lot of work on intermediate AMD. Maybe you can give us some thoughts on that. Yeah, great. I agree entirely with the discussion. It's, it's going to be an individual patient discussion, it's not going to be clear who, who will take this up or not initially. And yes, uh, gene therapy, potentially a one-off treatment to here, I think lends itself very well. I think what would be useful is this concept of geographic atrophy threatening vision or foveal threatening geographic atrophy. So I'm very keen for us to think about how would we define that? Because I can't imagine the authorities are going to pay for everybody to, to get this treatment. So who would we suggest gets the treatment? And I would think something like someone who has atrophy threatening the fovea within the next two years, say, if we could predict who they were going to be. Uh, and I think, therefore, to follow patients now as we, we anticipate treatment so that you can show the patient change over time themselves. So, for example, I take an autofluorescent image, and then if you've got a couple of years or, or a year's uh, difference to show them, then I think it's going to be easier to, to be able to sell the story individually that you're one of these people that this is what's going to happen if we don't intervene. And perhaps you're a person that we don't need to intervene now. So I think I would be encouraging our colleagues to start taking autofluorescent images if possible or OCT so that you can have that conversation with the individual patients. Um, and I think uh, as a profession, we would like to start earlier before there is uh, cell loss. So I'm sure once they get approved, there'll be people who will want to start earlier and earlier. And again, I don't think monthly or by month, um, every second monthly in treatment is the answer for intermediate AMD. But yes, our, our hope is to, what we've been trying to work on is making it easier for industry to try a, a large number of molecules that they have 
but the the uh, trial design is so hard to make it uh, palatable to, to undertake trials that start earlier. So we've been very active in trying to identify and define OCT signs of the first evidence of cell loss. So that even though these signs may not be FDA approved endpoints, at least companies and biotechs can start doing early phase studies to see which, which drugs and which techniques to take forward. Would you give us an opinion and opine on um, low intensity laser and photobiomodulation for intermediate dry MD? So we conducted what was called the LEAD study, uh, which used a nanosecond laser. So the first thing to say is maybe nanosecond is not the same as all subthreshold uh, uh, short action lasers. But certainly in that study, we were able to show in a post hoc analysis that the group that didn't have reticular pseudodrusin, so most people with intermediate AMD that had this laser treatment every six months for three years, certainly slowed their progression quite significantly compared to the group that had reticular pseudodrusin, which was about a quarter of all the people with intermediate AMD had reticular pseudodrusin at baseline. And so overall, there was no difference. But when you subdivided them into those two groups, there was certainly a major difference in response. And one that tells us that there's something we need to know about reticular pseudodrusin, which we don't understand. You know, why is it that those eyes did so badly or, or failed to respond? And the idea with the nanosecond laser is very unlike traditional thermal laser. This does not affect the neural retina. And the hope is it rejuvenates the RPE, either through cell division, which certainly happens in animal models, or at least a younger version. Uh, and certainly it appears that uh, you can uh, get changes that you can detect in the peripheral blood in uh, immune response after laser. Crazy, but and we don't really know how but it seems like there is the laser we don't really know how any laser works but certainly we seem to trigger an immune response that brings about a good effect in both eyes not only the eye that you treat plus also the other eye with this nanosecond laser so something like that that you can deliver six monthly uh, or less uh, seems potentially a way forward compared to intravitual injections uh, and so we are we're trying very hard to uh, get the FDA for us to agree for us to do this study uh, in the States and also uh, other internationally. But the problem is that endpoint. How do you run a trial where our, our endpoint is the beginnings of atrophy? Um, so we take people with intermediate AMD and try to stop them getting nascent geographic atrophy. And we know that nascent geographic atrophy has a, in our hands, a 78 uh, fold increased risk of geographic atrophy. So we think if we can stop nascent GA, you can stop geographic atrophy, but currently we have to prove that um, we can stop geographic atrophy, and that means it's a very long, large study. Going earlier is, is a uh, probably where we need to go, but we have to start with atrophy. And again, I, I would echo Carla, Charlie's comments about um, not we're not being negative on complement inhibition, but we're being realistic that it may not meet patient expectations with atrophy for most many of the patients. Um, let's, let's kind of summarize here. We've talked about maybe we're at the next level of AMD treatment. We kind of surveyed some of the new options, um, for wet AMD. We talked a little bit about atrophic AMD and even got Robin's expert opinion on intermediate AMD. Uh, Diana, do you want to give us some summary thoughts? 
I'm really thrilled to be in the field of ophthalmology and retina because there is so much innovation here. And just in the past year, now we have two new FDA approved therapies for wet AMD. I'm excited to use these therapies in my patients and to educate them about it. And I think in the future with our novel molecules in early stage clinical trials, I'm hopeful that we will address some of these unmet need areas. I agree entirely. It's a fancy being in a field where we have the um, already have had the experience of reducing the rate of blindness in, in more than half of our population with wet AMD. So I think uh, uh, the concept, I agree, we don't want to be negative to have a treatment, any treatment for the other form of late AMD. Atrophic AMD is a huge step forward. And of course, we'll get better at the delivery mechanism, but we have to start somewhere. So I think fantastic that we're right on that cusp. I'm in the same boat as everybody. Super exciting time. Great to have new opportunities and tools in the toolbox. And, you know, looking down the pipeline, it just gets curious to get better and better. There's a whole lot more um, durable sort of options that are being studied in sort of phase two type, type trials. Um, and I think that those are going to be really promising looking forward and a bunch of new pathways being looked at also. So and I think it's important with our patients that we tell them our current generation treatments are fantastic, but to make sure that you're optimizing your vision today because the next generation treatments are going to be even better tomorrow. Exactly. And we're, um, I'll echo and thank uh, all of the expertise and many years of experience in clinical research and with patients in the chair right in front of you. Um, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for Diana, Robin, Charlie, Rebecca for organizing this discussion. It's a good point in time to think about them with new treatment options. Um, we're in a very rich ecosystem of um, pharmacologic, biologic uh, device, um, laser, uh, subthreshold laser, um, entities that are all pointed towards doing better for patients. We're, we're also lucky that patients value vision because the treatments are not inexpensive. On the other hand, uh, I would argue that there's probably no more important um, aspect of, of health uh, for seniors in particular, uh, or even for the working age diabetic. And therefore our treatments are, are valuable and should be uh, accommodated as such. Thank you all for being here. I, I really enjoy the time and, and listening to you guys, and I think our readers will as well. This has been a wonderful discussion, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. This concludes our episode on new treatment options and considerations for AMD. Please tune in for future episodes of New Retina Radio.